The territories of ancient Lusitania today make up the highlands of modern central east Portugal and central western Spain, a mountainous and hilly landscape covered in vast forests. Beautiful indeed, but also dangerous when the right conditions come together that anyone that has spent time in these lands could tell you about. This being in the form of ruinous forest fires, a common occurrence that can quickly spread at an alarming rate, consuming everything in its path. Especially during the exceedingly hot summer months, dry with little precipitation from June through to September, with temperatures regularly soaring above the high 30s degrees Celsius, at times driven by natural occurrences, but more so attributed to human actions, resulting in roaring wildfires breaking out repeatedly in spots all over this landscape. For example, in recent years alone, Portugal reported an astounding average of approximately 20,000 blazes per year. As soon as a fire is contained or quenched in one area, all it takes is one small remaining ember to spread, one tiny spark that can give rise to something with overwhelming power, murderous in its anger and exceedingly difficult to control. Similarly, when looking back over 2,000 years ago, when the Roman commander Galba deceived the Lusitanians in 150 BCE, massacring 9,000 of their people and selling 20,000 into slavery, this ignited the spark of resistance. And then, when Briathus was made general of the Lusitanian army in 147 BCE, he began spreading these embers of resistance to the Roman occupation, fanning the flames into an uncontrollable uprising, leveraging the natural strengths of his people, their superior knowledge of the lands and natural inclination towards a guerrilla type of warfare, handing the Romans a sequence of devastating losses, unparalleled in the region, but then evolving his approach incorporating conventional pitched battles into his repertoire, also through launching imaginative ambushes, springing up when not expected, and then melting away only to do the same thing again elsewhere, convincing other tribes to jump into the fray so the Romans would be assailed on all sides, thereby getting the Romans to spread themselves thin, uncertain as to where problems could arise, casting doubt into their invincibility. All of this culminating into an epic resistance that would later be characterized by the Roman historians and oh so fitting to the region I would add in as the War of Fire. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord. Fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects and others that were rather short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to of course review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at 
the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime, we'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat that I'm looking to go beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode, the second and final part of our story on Varithus of the Lusitanians, also known as Viriato. Before jumping headlong into this episode, just a quick note that you may want to start with episode 6, which lays the groundwork for the Lusitanian resistance against the Roman Republic. But here's a short synopsis to help you get up to speed. In episode 6 we covered how the Romans, fresh off their victory over the Carthaginians in the Second Punic War, took possession of the southern and eastern coastlands of the Iberian Peninsula, establishing two initial provinces in 197 BCE, each province being governed by a Senate-appointed magistrate that proceeded to continually push inwards in the pursuit of more lands to conquer on behalf of the Roman Republic, these men wielding ultimate power with practically no oversight, thereby largely free to use these opportunities to enhance their own personal wealth to the detriment of the regional inhabitants, including the Lusitanians, whose lands were conquered in 179 BCE, followed by a brutally harsh exploitation of their lands and people. In response, the subsequent years were filled with war and battles, the Lusitanians making incursions south and east into the Roman lands, only to be pushed back by the Roman legions, who were seeing the best of the engagements. One of the key low points for the Lusitanians being in 150 BCE, when the Roman commander, Galba, under the pretense of a peace treaty, ended up deceiving the unarmed Lusitanians with a trap, massacring 9,000 of their people and selling 20,000 into slavery. With the war then reignited, things were looking rather bleak for the Lusitanians, who suffered numerous defeats in battle. Just before they were about to collapse under the weight of the Roman legions, Variathus was raised by his compatriots to become general of the Lusitanian army. Jumping into the fray, by immediately taking charge of the situation and quickly turning the tide of war, handing the Romans and their allies four battle losses in succession, breathing renewed life into this resistance that had been on the brink of collapse only months prior. When we last left things off, it was 146 BCE, and Variathus had just led the Lusitanians to their fourth successive victory in impressive style severely mauling a Roman army under the command of the impetuous general Plautius at the Battle of Mont Venus near the Serra d'Estrella Mountains, deep in the Lusitanian lands. Given the amazing turn of fortune that the Lusitanian resistance had taken due to Varithus's ascendancy to leadership, this also brought him a great deal of attention, acclaim, and admiration with people from various tribes coming to join under his banner. And through his martial successes, he was essentially being lauded as a king at that point by the native Hispanians in his ranks. Though 
This was more so used unofficially as a term of respect and endearment. And it was around this time that his skyrocketing stock value also led to his marriage with the daughter of a ranking and wealthy Lusitanian tribal chieftain. Now, the reason that I'm covering this is because this event provides some key insights as to his personality and the motivations surrounding this lesser-known warlord. At the sumptuous banquet celebrating the marriage of this new savior of the Lusitanian people, his father-in-law and other wealthy chieftains apparently showered him and his bride with riches, gold, silver, splendid draperies, tributes befitting that of a king's nuptials. Variathus, still wearing his armor and weapons, which he rarely took off, even when going to sleep, looked on with disdain, visibly not impressed in the least with all the finery now surrounding him. He arose from his seat of honor and addressed the group, saying, All this wealth is meaningless if we remain slaves to those that hold the sword. Wise words of foresight, lending to the notion that the Romans were far from defeated, and that all these possessions, battles won to date, and thus all the territories freed from the ever-grasping Roman hands would be for nothing if the next waves were not stopped. He then distributed all the gifts among his men and abruptly left the banquet with his wife back to his simple homestead in the mountains. And a quick note on that, the sharing of spoils was something that Variathus did time and time again. Whenever they plundered a city and carted away the riches, he only took the equal share of a common soldier for himself, with the rest distributed evenly among all the other men. This was an important aspect of how he kept his army intact, taking an equal share of both the dangers and the spoils. And to that end, not once did they ever mutiny against his leadership, even when they were met with setbacks. Quite the impressive accomplishment, considering that they were made up of so many different people and tribes that were normally independent from one another. But perhaps most importantly, in a world rife with greed and want of more, particularly in contrast to their Roman adversaries, this won great admiration and loyalty among all those that followed him, and clearly demonstrated his character. And as far as the motivations for getting involved in war, while one could make an argument that personal glory was perhaps a contributing factor for Variathus, he reportedly was not the type of person to brag about his accomplishments nor seek out fawning accolades from those around him. It was certainly not for the accumulation of wealth at the expense of his people, but rather being fully focused on the freeing of his people from their Roman overlords and the inevitable exploitation that would coincide. Following Variathus's marriage, before the year was played out, and as he had predicted during the wedding banquet, Rome had raised yet another army that were now en route to Lusitania, led by the general Claudius Unimanus. Marching westwards from Hispania Citidior into the Lusitanian lands. However, Variathus had been busy organizing his forces and making Lusitania into a fortress of sorts, so they wouldn't be caught off guard as had been experienced in past years, and had gained knowledge of their approach before they arrived on the doorstep of their tribal territories. Being that, he had established a series of watchouts, sentries, and border guards 
all along the perimeter or outskirts of their lands, whose primary purpose was of course to be watchful of Roman activity or the regional allies and any potential threats coming their way. But this was also used as a mechanism by which to survey the surrounding Roman-held lands and identify opportunities to strike out against them. For example, when smaller Roman units were sent out to cut down wood for their building needs and campfires, if these groups ventured too close to their lands or were left out isolated for too long, they would sometimes never be heard from again. Having a strong informational network was essential. Being able to watch troop movements and assess their plans, gaining awareness of their attempted entry points, so that a carefully planned response could be prepared, and on lands that would be advantageous to the native inhabitants. This was a significant feature of Varithus's strategy for the War of Fire, going out when not expected, using the natural defenses of his land to act as the foundation for striking out, only to melt back and strike out elsewhere when the conditions were favorable. As such, by the time Unimanus arrived and led his soldiers into the Lusitanian lands, Variathus had ample lead time to prepare for their arrival. And while a battle did indeed occur, unfortunately, the accounts of this battle, the exact location, numbers, and casualties of the altercation were extremely sparse. However, it was reported that this again ended up being a definitive victory for the Lusitanians, with the Roman army brutally punished and put to flight. Although the account of the battle was sparse, there was one nugget that arose to the surface that provides a clear indication of the fighting abilities and caliber of the Lusitanian warriors, provided by none other than Unimanus himself, who survived these events and managed to make it back to Rome. When the victorious Lusitani army retired and dispersed confidently, one of them on foot became separated and was then surrounded by a detachment of Roman cavalry. As the first Roman cavalryman charged out to cut down the isolated native, the lone Lusitanian warrior stood his ground, not even attempting to flee, showing unwavering bravery and a complete disregard for death. As the Roman rider charged in, the Lusitanian warrior at the last moment jumped out of the way, right before piercing and skewering the horse with his spear, then attacking the fallen rider brutally setting upon him, making short work of their melee, ending the Roman soldier's life in a vicious fashion, one sword blow cutting off his adversary's head, producing such terror among the others that they prudently gave up their chase and didn't even attempt to resume it. Adding insult to injury, the Lusitanian warrior then slowly and calmly walked away from the field a contemptuous gaze intermittently being fixed on the Romans, showing no fear. Even then, obviously provoked, the Romans were unwilling to test their fate against this single warrior. This victory left no sizable Roman armies in the field to threaten them, allowing Variathus and the Lusitanians to take their focus off from a defensive mindset, warding off assaults to move towards offense now identifying Roman-held cities to go after. Early the following year in 145 BCE, Variathus led his army and marched out northeast from Lusitania, 
readily plundering and liberating the Roman hold on towns and cities near their sphere of influence. In particular, sacking the two sizable cities of Cauca and Sehovia in modern-day central Spain, about 150 kilometers to the northwest of Madrid. Herein lies a prime example of why this resistance against the Romans was called the War of Fire. Appearing in Roman-held lands and towns just outside of the Lusitanian territories, destroying Roman garrisons and plundering, only to disappear back into the security of their lands before popping up in another place unexpectedly, catching the Romans off guard to do the same thing, this practice being utilized innumerably. Another feature of this war of fire was driven by Variathus, fanning the flames of resistance to Rome into active blazes and declarations of war elsewhere by convincing other tribes to get in on the action. Because at this time, Variathus was also regularly communicating and meeting with other tribal chieftains, campaigning to dislodge them from peace with the Romans, emphasizing their common cause. Given the Roman track record, it was quite easy to see that these invaders were intent on gobbling up the different tribal lands one by one, the overarching strategy being to essentially make a case for them to commence military actions against the Romans, in the aim of overwhelming and stretching thin the Romans' ability to respond in kind. Of note were a number of sizable Celtic tribes in the northeast of Hispania that were convinced to join into the fight namely the Aravasi, Tithi, and Belli tribes, who dropped their allegiances to Rome and began to wage war on their own accounts, which in time would cascade into a broader conflict, called the Numantine War, that would continue beyond Variathus' lifetime. With the marauding Lusitanian forces running around unchecked in the Roman-held possessions in northern Hispania Citerior, the Romans were of course in the background, working furiously to cobble together another army to throw into the field. When Variathus and his army sacked the cities of Cauca and Sehovia, this triggered another Roman response, and a new general to enter into the fray. Gaius Nigidius, who had recently been sent to Hispania Citerior at the head of another army, likely in the realm of around 12,000 to about 13,000 soldiers. Upon learning of the Lusitanians' pillaging of the Roman cities, Nigidius set off in hot pursuit, driving his men forward towards the troublesome natives with aggressive marches. Learning of their approach, Variathus had some other plans, wanting to bait Nigidius into marching his army into Lusitania, what was quickly becoming a black hole for the Roman legions. When his scouts informed him of the advancing Roman contingent, Variathus ordered his army to retreat back to Lusitania with haste and make ready for the upcoming Roman response. Nigidius caught up with them near the modern-day city of Viseu in central north Portugal, deep in the Lusitanian homeland, and just to the northwest of the Serra da Estrela mountain range. Variathus then selected a defensible hill from which to station a large portion of his forces, surrounded by dense forests. Following the approach of his predecessors and not heeding the lessons from their failures, believing that these undisciplined natives would fold under the weight of the superior Roman infantry, Nigidius wasted little time 
and immediately ordered an assault to be launched on the fortified hill. As the Roman legions began their uphill fight, the lands around exploded into action, with Lusitanian detachments appearing out from the forest from all around, crashing into the Romans with fury, overwhelming the Roman army and cleaving into them to devastating results, decimating their ranks, and it appears that Nigidius too may have fallen in the fight, being that no historical accounts make any mention of what happened to him afterwards. One thing is for certain, however, that like all the other Roman armies that had entered Lusitania to fight Variathus and his army, they too never left the area. And Variathus' strategy of luring Roman armies into their arena to establish a home field advantage had certainly been an effective one, given the successes that they had achieved up to that point. Now, before we move further on in this story, part of me feels that I may not have given enough credit to the Roman military capabilities. Because let's face it, the Roman legions were absolute beasts, and the primary tool through which Rome had managed to become the undisputed master of the Mediterranean and beyond. However, when it comes to this theater of war, there were a number of elements that were certainly not working in their favor. The legions were primarily designed for pitched battles, with a strong emphasis on heavy infantry, and really few opposing armies would be able to best them in these types of encounters. Had Variathus instead elected to participate in these types of open fights, instead of leading the Romans into creative ambushes, Despite the obvious fighting prowess of the Lusitanians, I'm not convinced they would have seen any of the victories that they had seen up to that point, trying to battle the Romans toe-to-toe in open fields. I think Variathus clearly understood this, which is why he employed guerrilla-like tactics so extensively, a natural extension of how the tribes typically operated. As a consequence, for the Romans, being so focused in terms of heavy infantry this was not ideal for these types of engagements. And while this partially explains their lackluster performance, in my opinion, perhaps the biggest factor in the poor showings of the Roman legions at this time is that these exemplary armies were essentially being mismanaged by poor commanders. These generals repeatedly charged headlong into the breach, not considering tactics, simply believing that the superior quality of its army would allow it to win the day. Hard lessons, which resulted in thousands of Roman soldiers being killed in numerous battles. Let's take a moment to review the makeup of both military forces to get a more comprehensive understanding of how they operated, as this will play a fundamental role in understanding how things unfolded as they did. For the Roman Republic, at this time, their army would be best characterized by the term Manipular Legion, a configuration that was in use from roughly 315 to about 100 BCE. Each legion consisting of 5,000 infantry, in fact, three different types of infantry, called the Hastati, Principe, and Triari. And these massive groupings were made up of smaller subunits called maniples units of 120 men from a single infantry type, offering up some sense of flexibility to peel off units to complete objectives or commands assigned, 
when the occasion called for it, when in bigger battles, the legions would be typically deployed into three main lines, based on the infantry type. In the first line were the Hastati, leather-armored infantry who wore a bronze breastplate and a bronze helmet adorned with three feathers, and they carried an iron-clad rectangular wooden shield. They were armed with a sword and two throwing spears, called pilum, or pila for plural. The second line were the principe. They were essentially armed and armored in the same manner as the hastati, but wore a lighter coat of mail rather than a solid brass breastplate. The triari formed the third line. These were the last remnants of the hoplite-style troops in the Roman army. They were armed and armored like the principe, with the exception that their primary weapon was a long pike, and they didn't carry any throwing spears. The main body of the army was also supported by some light infantry soldiers and typically 300 cavalry per legion, but the main engine relied upon the most was by far the heavy infantry units. In addition to the configuration of these Roman armies, there were some other interesting things happening in the background too, within the mighty military machine. The Roman Republic largely grew through an aggressive imperialistic foreign policy approach, which was almost always executed through warfare. This happening with amazing regularity and often in several theaters of war at one time. Initially, what defined the Roman army was that it was made up solely of Roman citizenry who were from property-owning families. The constant warring in particular made worse by the hemorrhaging of manpower due to the brutal Punic Wars had lasting effects on the populace in the form of depopulation forcing the army to recruit soldiers from classes that, while still citizens, had not been called upon previously. What this also coincided with was the Romans increasingly relying on foreign muscle, hiring mercenaries to fight alongside the legions, such as the Hispanian tribes in this story. In contrast to the clean-cut and rather uniform look of the soldiers within the Roman legions, the Lusitanians certainly had the appearance of what comes to mind when you think of the word barbarian. Long, wild hair and beards, and only lightly armored with shields and helmets, they fought predominantly with slings and javelins, and spears and swords in close quarters, including the elegant falcata blades that were quite popular in pre-Roman Iberia. Unlike their Roman adversaries, they weren't organized according to type of military unit, but more so along tribal lines, especially when involved in operations requiring lesser numbers, which of course is where the Lusitanian army excelled. As we discussed back in episode six, the very topography of the Lusitanian lands and the competitiveness between the tribal clans within would have made raiding and defending against such part of their bread and butter. In other words, a regular part of their very existence a definitive strength that the Romans lacked due to their favoring of heavy infantry, thereby not particularly suited to fighting in the mountainous and forested lands of Lusitania, and that would have weighed them down, making mobility an issue, well, at least in comparison to the Hispanian natives. Roman historians also universally hailed the Lusitanians as being extremely physically fit, active, and nimble, used to hard work with sparse food. Even in times of peace, physical prowess was celebrated by these natives, 
displayed through a particular style of dancing which required great agility and strength of the legs and thighs. One key weakness, however, that permeated the Lusitanian army was the lack of discipline and organization to work in larger groups, as this was simply something that did not come natural to them in warfare. Although, to his credit, Variathus ended up doing an exceptional job at holding these varied tribes together as a cohesive army. For example, it was noted that the Lusitanians during war were able to march in sequence. However, when charging into battle, formations would not necessarily hold together very well, each warrior aiming to showcase individual fighting abilities and bravery. In any event, with momentum and a number of recent victories under their belts, Variathus would soon attempt a straight-up pitched battle against the Roman army, taking the fight into their realm of expertise, though with a hard lesson to be followed. Although this would ultimately be a tough pill to swallow for the Lusitanians, their intelligent and cunning commander, Variathus, luckily was a quick study and would continue to evolve his tactics, learning from the failures. In the later stages of this war of resistance, adapting his tactics to then, and amazingly, I would add in, teach the Romans themselves some hard lessons in the types of battles that they excelled in. In 145 BCE, Roman power in Hispania was suffering greatly, being that the units there had been hemorrhaging military manpower, in large part attributed to inexperienced generals that came out of the aristocracy, or just simply a line of generals that were just plain bad, who had routinely underestimated their native adversaries, opting instead to charge headlong into the Lusitanian lands to detrimental results. However, this was all about to end when Rome sent Quintus Fabius Maximus Aemilianus to seek out and put an end to Variathus and his army. Fabius was a proven and fully capable commander. The son of the renowned and celebrated Paulus Aemilianus, a general of some repute that 13 years prior had served exceptionally well in the Third Macedonian War. Fabius served under his father during this time and learned the trade well. And beyond that point, Fabius had held a number of public offices and in 145 BCE was then named as the commander of Hispania Ulterior. Fabius arrived with an army of 15,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, which was quite large from a numerical standpoint. But there was a huge challenge with this force in that it was laden with inexperienced soldiers, men that had never seen military action and totally unproven, mainly due to two reasons. First, as mentioned earlier, in the years leading up to this point in time, the Romans had been involved in many other theaters of war, exhausting the strength of the legions in these lands. Secondly, in Hispania, in particular since Variathus led the Lusitanian resistance and encouraged other tribes to rebel, Fabius's predecessors had failed horribly, misusing their armies and losing the vast majority of their soldiers in the entanglements, clearing Hispania of its battle-hardened legions. So, in addition to everything, there was definitely a need to develop and foster new capable legions in the region. Fabius landed his army in the city of Gades, 
now called Cadiz, in the south of the peninsula, and augmented his army with some of the remnants of the demoralized Roman soldiers that had been left in the area. Then he marched them north, identifying the ideal landscape to act as their base of operations for the upcoming battles, finding a plateau upon which to build their fortification, an area near the present-day town of Osuna, about 100 kilometers east of present-day Seville. The wise Fabius, realizing that sending out this improved force to fight the Lusitanians would end in disaster, made no attempts whatsoever to engage Variathus and risk battle, and was instead focused on drilling and training his army to get them ready for the future battles that lay ahead. In the meanwhile, Variathus watched and waited in the wings, anticipating an attack like those launched from the previous Roman commanders. But nothing happened. So Variathus began poking them with a stick, harassing Fabius's men, attempting to lure them out. One tried and true method being attacking the Roman soldiers who had been sent out regularly to cut trees for lumber for their building requirements and daily needs. But Fabius understood these tactics and didn't take the bait. Now, there were some minor skirmishes that had occurred, but Fabius wanted to use these smaller interactions as ways to build up the experience and confidence of his soldiers, following the lessons of his illustrious father. In the following year in 144 BCE, unlike the line of Roman generals in Hispania before him, Fabius had not botched his command and managed to keep Variathus relatively quiet and from making any significant inroads against Roman-held territories and cities. So, the Senate in Rome extended his command for another year, in the hopes that this capable commander would finally be the one to quell the Lusitanians. In the spring of 144 BCE, with his army now trained and disciplined to his satisfaction, morale within the Roman forces had also been raised being that they had fended off the Lusitanian skirmishes over the course of the winter. Fabius then began incursions towards the Lusitanian lands, likely heading northwest from his position, not to make his way deep into the tribal territories in pursuit of Variathus and his army, which had been the pitfall of so many generals before him, but to embark on the pillaging and despoiling of Lusitanian towns and cities thereby aiming to draw out Variathus to defend these places and draw him into a pitched battle, and perhaps most importantly, not in a place of his choosing. Variathus, driven by the need to defend his people, and perhaps encouraged by their rather impressive undefeated streak since he took charge, decided to test his troops against the Romans in a decisive pitched battle. Now. The historical texts are extremely unclear as to the location of this battle. However, based on the maps indicating the extent of the Lusitanian lands and the fact that Fabius opted to chewing around the edges of their lands in order to draw them out, it is quite possible that this event took place near the city of Alcantara, which is situated on the Tagus River on the southeast edge of the Lusitanian lands in present-day western Spain. The disciplined and orderly fighting machine that was the Roman legion lined up across Variathus at the head of his uproariously loud and long-haired tribesmen. As the two armies approached each other, missiles began to be thrown overhead, 
arrows, javelins, stones from slingers, before the two armies smashed into one another, rallying back at times only to do so again and again. The battle turned into a brutal and bloody slog, but unlike the previous fights wherein Varithus had selected the ideal ground, this type of fight was where the Romans excelled, what their army was designed for. Although the casualties were said to have been quite high on both sides, the Romans clearly won out the day, forcing Varithus to escape the battlefield and meld back into the forested hills and mountains that the Lusitanian lands were so famous for. Fabius did initially call for a pursuit, but soon lost the trail and was unwilling to send his troops too far into Varithus's stomping grounds, well aware of the fate of those that did so previously. Instead, he wheeled his victorious armies around and returned to Osuna to wait out the winter, being that his second year as magistrate of Hispania Ulterior would soon be ending, requiring him to return back to Rome and hand off his command to another. In the end, Fabius had been undoubtedly effective in his approach, having won some smaller skirmishes, brutally sacking several towns on the periphery of the Lusitanian lands, with his crowning achievement there being a definitive victory against Varithus. And lastly, now leaving a capable army behind in Hispania Ulterior. Although one main item remained unchecked off his to-do list, that being not having captured or killed Varithus. As winter took hold of the region, Varithus returned back to his stronghold deep within the Serra de Estrella mountains to lick his wounds and determine his next steps. The casualties within his ranks had stung significantly, but the Lusitanians were not even close to being finished just yet. Varithus was determined to learn from that disheartening loss and continue the resistance against the Romans to prevent them from making further inroads into their lands. Over the winter months, Varithus focused on raising more recruits and sending them raiding into the Roman lands to gain combat experience, while also reaching out to the native tribes in the south and east of their lands to either join in with his army or rebel against the Romans themselves. By the time spring was in bloom in the region in 143 BCE, the Roman legions in Asuna had a new commander at the helm by the name of Quintius. Unlike Fabius, he was not a proven general of distinction, but he was quite eager to take this disciplined and effective army that he had inherited out for a test drive, intent on finishing the job that Fabius had been unable to complete. This immediately got me thinking about a kid who wants to take his parents' finely tuned sports car out for a test drive while they're away on vacation. So. Based on this, you can probably assume where I'm going with this, and yes, he did trash it. As soon as Quintius arrived, he wasted little time in marching the legions westwards and then north, marching through the modern-day region of Alentejo in south-central Portugal, attempting to enter Lusitania from the south and take them by surprise. However, Varithus's scouts identified the coming Roman incursion, and with reinforced numbers within his ranks, he led them out to meet the Roman armies, boldly committing to another pitched battle. And this was certainly bold. 
but also a very risky calculation by Variathus, as a loss here would have damaged, maybe even beyond repair, his credentials, and the ability and morale of the Lusitanians to continue waging their fight. Unfortunately, we don't have a detailed account of the battle itself, but we do know that the result was reportedly an outstanding success for the Lusitanians, with Quintius and his reduced forces put into flight, hurrying back to their base in Osuna. But it didn't end there. Variathus was in a foul mood and bent on harsh retribution for the loss in the previous year mercilessly harassing the Romans during their flight and brutally surprising the Romans with skirmishes repeatedly, unrelentingly, well into the Roman-held territories of Hispania Ulterior. The Roman army was left in tatters, enabling Variathus to continue this incursion and sack a number of Roman towns along the way, most notably the city of Italica, which is just outside of modern-day Seville, Spain before assaulting the Roman fortification of Asuna, where Quintius was holed up with the remnants of his forces. Variathus and his army eviscerated the Roman army and left their encampment in ashes. Standards from yet another Roman army in hand, laden with plunder intended for the populace that had suffered in the Roman attacks from the previous year. Variathus led his troops back to Lusitania, the resistance renewed with heightened excitement. The following year, in 142 BCE, this setback caused the Senate in Rome to send another capable commander to Hispania Altidior to stop this runaway Lusitanian train that was causing dire havoc in the region. The adopted son of Fabius, this being the same Roman general that had seen a number of successes against Variathus, back in 145 and 144 BCE, named Quintus Fabius Maximus Servilianus, who would have served in his father's army in years past, gaining solid combat experience in dealing with these Hispanian tribes. Servilianus brought with him the usual force of two legions and a contingent of cavalry to which he augmented with the available troops in the region. All told, Servilianus's forces totaled 18,000 infantry and 2,000 horse, which was among the biggest armies that the Romans had brought into the region in recent memory. With this massive army in tow, Servilianus made his way north from Gades on the southern coast of the peninsula to set up his base of operations 120 kilometers north in Italica. En route, Variathus and 6,000 of his warriors unleashed a surprise attack on this newly arrived Roman army, which I find rather interesting and made me think about things in a couple of different ways. One, this attack took place deep in Roman-held territory, so a complete surprise. And two, what was Variathus thinking, attacking such a large group, being outnumbered more than three to one? Maybe he was doing it to simply gauge the strength and skill of this new general. Or perhaps this was part of a more elaborate strategic plan that would come to fruition in the coming months. Not surprisingly, the Lusitanian attack was repulsed readily by Servalianus, with Variathus's troops disappearing back into the landscape as quickly as they had appeared. Shortly after this event, 
Cervellianus reached the city of Italica and set up elaborate fortifications, and then was soon after out on the march again, his scouts having spotted a portion of Variathus's army heading back towards Lusitania. For days, the Lusitanians retreated and the Romans pursued, but unexpectedly, the native troops stopped, with the Romans doing the same and setting up a temporary fort, as was their custom when out in the field. The two armies lined up on a flatland plain, Variathus accompanied by 6,000 warriors and unbelievably intending to offer up a pitched battle against Servilianus with his much larger force. The legions moved forward, commencing the attack, launching their javelins or pila into the opposing ranks before charging forward swords in hand. In the face of this overwhelmingly ferocious heavy infantry attack, it's not surprising that the Lusitanian force buckled and then fell into a wild retreat, running desperately back into the protection and cover of the forested hill lands just kilometers away. Cervellianus sent off a large detachment, 3,000 of his soldiers, forward to take advantage of this disorderly retreat, urging them forward to mop up this renegade and his ragtag army. So you probably know what's coming, right? By this point, I am quite sure that you're aware that Variathus was not the type of foolhardy commander to try such a poorly planned maneuver while being outnumbered so heavily. That is, unless he had something else in mind. And yes, you would have guessed correctly because the retreat was a feint, the disorderly retreat causing an unorganized pursuit by the Romans. As soon as the Roman detachment landed upon the Lusitanians in the forest-covered hilltops, the forest exploded with a roar of voices all around. Thousands of fearless natives smashing into the Roman detachment from all sides. By the time Servilianus reached the site, all he found were the lifeless bodies of approximately 3,000 soldiers strewn about the forest, courtesy the elaborate and brilliant plan conducted by Variathus. But it wasn't over yet. Back at the temporary fort that very night, Variathus and his men attacked the camp with savage vigor, causing mass confusion and more casualties before sinking back into the nighttime air once the Romans had managed to organize themselves, followed by another creeping attack the following day during the intense midday heat, not being a typical time for launching an attack. Variathus employed this tactic extensively over the following days, constantly harassing Servilianus and burning their fortifications to such a degree that it drove the Romans all the way back to their headquarters in Italica, where there too they were forced to fend off incursions from the Lusitanian army. At length though, Variathus's men were overextended and in need of provisions, with their attacks grounding to a stalemate, so they turned back and returned to their tribal territories. This reprieve gave Servilianus some time to catch his breath and reorganize his army, pulling some regional allies into his army and replacing some of the losses that he had experienced over the past months. In the spring of 141 BCE, Servilianus led his renewed army away from Italica, striking out northwest, aiming for the destruction of Lusitanian towns and cities at the outskirts of their lands, 
attempting to emulate the successful strategy that his adopted father had previously employed. He began by plundering more than five towns in quick succession, taking over 10,000 prisoners in the process, and brutally cutting the hands off at least 500 captives, selling the rest off as slaves. All the while, moving steadily towards Oxthrace, the largest Lusitanian city. Of note is that during this time, Variathus and his troops were attempting to waylay the marauding Romans, but these attacks had been effectively countered by the Romans at each turn. Oxthrace, however, was a walled city, not so easily taken as the other towns, and included a couple of hundred Lusitanian soldiers defending the walls. Servilianus commanded for a siege, ordering his troops to dig massive trenches around the city, accompanied by earthen mounds to prevent anyone from leaving. The first night of the siege, with the trench not yet completed, Variathus and a handful of his men managed to sneak through the Roman lines and make it into the city. Then, early in the following morning, when the Romans resumed digging, Variathus, with a couple of hundred of warriors at his back, made a daring attack on the working soldiers, which resulted in Servilianus ordering more soldiers up to jump into the entanglement. This inward focus was exactly what Variathus had intended. As this triggered thousands of Lusitanians hidden in the rolling countryside to pour into the area and launch an equally daring attack upon the Roman army from the outside. In the months leading up to this point, Variathus had been scouring his lands for troops in order to acquire adequate numbers to deal with a massive Roman army and may have in fact cobbled together a numerically superior force, waiting for the right opportunity to unleash this surprise, which was now presented here since Servilianus was focused on the siege and apparently not anticipating an exterior assault. The Lusitanian attack proved to be so effective, being that the Romans were assailed from all sides, that a retreat was sounded at Servilianus's command, otherwise his army would have been utterly destroyed. As he had learned this to be an exceedingly effective tactic, Variathus did not let the Romans retreat without harassing them incessantly, almost as if a shepherd herding a flock of sheep, driving and directing this mass of Roman troops towards a confined plateau with a steep drop in front of them, rendering the Romans trapped and at a severe tactical disadvantage. And just as Servilianus anticipated the oncoming onslaught, the Lusitanians stopped and held back. So you might be asking the question, why in the world would the Lusitanians hold back at this moment when they could have ended the threat of that Roman army right then and there? Well, this pause happened on the orders of Variathus, who instead sent over ambassadors to meet with Servilianus in the pursuit of a peaceable solution, the alternative being facing the utter ruin of his army. By this point in time, Variathus had become completely aware that decimating Servilianus and this Roman army would just continue the cycle that they had seen out play repeatedly over the last seven years. Sure, the Romans would be stopped for the time being, however, this would simply result in Rome sending yet another army, this adversary that possessed seemingly limitless resources and manpower. 
Varivus met with Servilianus and came to terms, while their armies waited in the wings, Varivus agreeing not to attack the Roman army in this precarious position and let them go back to their base in Italica, whereas Servilianus, who belonged to an influential patrician family in Rome, would agree to peace with the Lusitanians as a sovereign nation and have the Senate in Rome sign off on the terms. In the following months when Servilianus returned to Rome, he was shown to be a man of his word, and the treaty was ratified by the Senate, wherein Variathus and the Lusitanians were declared to be amicus populi Romani, or loosely translated from Latin as friends to the Romans. A legal classification bestowed upon four nations, thereby officially recognized as a sovereign independent nation including their ancestral tribal lands. This was certainly the apex of Variathus's accomplishments, a spectacular achievement. He had navigated these murky waters with unequaled skill and played his final hand perfectly. The problem with this, however, is that Rome and its leading citizens was a morass of people with different agendas and interests, ambitious people in the pursuit of glory to raise their and their family standing among their colleagues. But even within the families themselves, which is what happened here, with Servilianus's brother, Quintus Servilius Capio, being assigned the command of Hispania Ulterior following his brother's departure. Capio felt that the treaty was dishonorable to the Romans and wanted to establish himself as a great commander, as was his celebrated father. The problem, however, was that Rome had just ratified the peace deal with the Lusitanians. So overtly going against this would have been considered treason against the Republic, inviting a penalty of exile or worse. So he opted for another strategy, a more subversive path forward, sending out his army in small detachments to make incursions into Lusitania, focusing on the smaller villages and hamlets and having them commit atrocious acts, killing and disparaging at will, conducting a dirty war that some of the soldiers in his command viewed as unbecoming as Romans. All of this in the interest of goading Variathus to attack, which would have then justified overturning the months-old peace treaty. Capio kept this up relentlessly through 140 BCE, and despite envoys from Variathus to put an end to this, Capio reportedly scoffed, demanding audacious shows of fealty from the powerful tribal leader, demands that were certainly not in keeping with the sovereign counterpart to Rome. Before the year was out, Capio got his wish and Variathus was compelled into responding with military action, destroying the smaller military units that Capio was sending out followed by more forceful invasions into Hispania Ulterior. As such, Rome in turn aligned with Capio's request and overturned the treaty, declaring war on Lusitania once again. With Rome's support in hand, Capio began despoiling the Lusitanian periphery territories, not yet willing to march his army into the heart of Lusitania, which had ended up being the graveyard of numerous predecessors. Aiming to draw Variathus out, who at this point would not take the bait, being that the Roman army was much more numerous than his own at that point, 
likely waiting for the right opportunity and circumstances to help even the odds. Capio, however, was growing impatient and became increasingly flagrant with the lives of his soldiers, sending a never-ending stream of detachments deeper into the Lusitanian lands to test their mettle and identify where the bulk of Ariathus' army was stationed. This would often effectively become a death sentence for the beleaguered Roman soldiers, who more and more loudly were voicing their discontent on how their commander was throwing away their lives. At some point, the palpable tension boiling over into rage and then mutiny within the Roman camp, forcing Capio to flee from his camp or be torn apart by his own men. Capio did manage to escape and later made concessions to ease the concerns of the legions, including not sending out detachments with such recklessness. In 139 BCE, all these events forced Capio to change his approach, resorting to a different type of distasteful scheming. With the Roman raids into their lands drying up, Variathus used this pause in fighting as an opportunity to at least attempt a resumption of peaceful negotiations, sending an envoy of three close companions, Audax, Dyticlus, and Minerus, who headed over to Capio's fortifications to discuss terms. Upon returning to the Lusitanian encampment in the middle of the night, they advised the perimeter guards that they had urgent communications to bring to Variathus. With no reason to doubt their sincerity, these trusted compatriots then entered into Variathus' tent, which was always unguarded because he was not the type of leader to be bothered with any such special treatment. Finding their illustrious leader asleep, but as usual wearing his armor in a perpetual state of readiness, Variathus was roused from his slumber only to have a dagger plunged deep into his exposed throat, ending his life and murdered in cold blood. With the dark deed completed, the three villains snuck back out of the camp into the night air. The three traveled back to Capio to receive their reward, being that he had bribed them with untold riches to do what numerous Roman commanders and legions had been unable to do. In the ultimate irony, when they returned to Capio, expecting to be received as heroes and showered with riches, Capio reneged on the deal, declaring that Rome does not pay traitors, rendering them to a fate worse than death, no riches in hand, now mired in poverty with no place to go, outcasts from their own tribe. At daybreak, in the Lusitanian camp the following morning, Upon finding Variathus murdered, there was wailing throughout the camp, soldiers crying out in unbridled sorrow. Realizing the gravity of their loss, the brilliant strategist and tactician that had given them so much hope for the future of their people, a true patriot, not motivated by personal gain and solely driven by the emancipation of his people, rightly dreading what this loss meant for the future of their tribe in the face of the Roman behemoth that was greedily waiting on the horizon to eat them up. His body was taken with reverence, dressed in splendid attire, and then burnt on a huge funeral pyre, surrounded by the thousands of his soldiers in his command, 
sounding the praises of their leader and roaring out war cries to accompany his departure from this world. After the death of Variathus, the Lusitanians kept on fighting under the leadership of a man named Tautilus in 139 BCE. However, this new leader did not possess the military acumen of his predecessor. Tautilus took command of Variathus's army, marching them towards the city of Saguntum, today called Sagunto, just north of the city of Valencia, Spain, in the Roman province of Hispania Citerior, besieging it unsuccessfully. After being repelled by these defenders, they turned about and started heading towards Hispania Ulterior, looking for other targets. Tautilus led the Lusitanian army southwest, traveling along the Betis River, today called the Guadalquivir. At one point during their march, Tautilus and his army were in the midst of a river crossing, when Capio caught up with them in that vulnerable position and sprung an attack with a numerically superior army, soundly defeating the Lusitanians and effectively ending their war of resistance right then and there. Of note is that when Capio returned to Rome, he petitioned but was refused a triumph by the Senate due to the dishonorable way in which he was able to finally defeat Variathus and the rest of the Lusitanians. Interestingly, in signing the peace treaty, the Lusitanians then officially recognized themselves as subjects to the Roman Republic with Capio in turn assigning them lands and agreeing not to engage in the exploitation that had led to the uprisings in the first place, believing that the Lusitanians would simply keep on fighting if the terms weren't met. So while Variathus, despite a tremendously heroic effort, was ultimately unable to prevent the Roman domination of his lands and people, the legacy of his vision was at least partially achieved. Granted, embers of the War of Fire continued to erupt into raging blazes in other parts of Hispania, due to the numerous other tribes that Variathus had managed to dislodge from cooperating with the Romans, namely the Numantine War, which was another noteworthy Celtic tribal resistance in northeastern Hispania that continued for a number of years afterwards, only ending in 133 BCE. And of note, a war which included a number of tribes from the Lusitanian Confederation that, in the spirit of Variathus, continued to fight on, resisting the mighty Roman steamroller. However, Roman control of the region was inevitable and gradually extended over the entirety of the Iberian Peninsula, completed in 19 BCE, after the Roman Republic had transitioned into the Roman Empire. Augustus, the first Roman emperor, annexed the whole of Hispania to officially become part of the Roman Empire in 19 BCE. And during this time, the provincial boundaries in Hispania were redrawn, with Lusitania established as a province, which would later become roughly the south and central regions of the modern-day country of Portugal, founded 1100 years later in 1143. Under Roman rule, Lusitania and its people gradually acquired Roman culture and language, eventually gaining the status of citizens of Rome and fully absorbed into the Roman Empire. Looking at the broader context in terms of the impacts on the Roman Republic and eventually the Roman Empire, 
all the events of Variathus's War of Fire and the Roman conquest of the Iberian Peninsula lead us to some fascinating cracks towards the foundation that the Roman Republic was built upon, pieces of the puzzle that led to wider instability and that would later contribute to its collapse, replaced by the Roman Empire with dictators now at the helm. In episode 6, we explored the toll that all this constant warring was having on the Roman citizenry, particularly the middle class that was disappearing, quite literally killed off, being that they were the ones accounting for the bulk of the military. While the rich patrician families, with an insatiable appetite for slave labor acquired through Roman conquest and exploitation of regional tribes, like seen in Hispania, were seeking this in order to optimize the profitability of their expanding land holdings, farms, and mines, therefore no jobs for the middle-class citizens, resulting in a vast swath of poorer citizens of Rome, meaning a huge proportion of people that could be bought off when voting on aristocrats campaigning for public offices and deciding of legal matters. It was increasingly based on whoever the highest bidder was clearly a seismic amount of corruption, an unsustainable dysfunction for a properly functioning republic, which certainly contributed to its fall. Another insight gleaned from these events, attributed to the constant warring, is a notion that is also applicable to the later Roman Empire, effectively this never-ending need for more military manpower. With Roman manpower being tapped incessantly for soldiers, this well would in the future dry up almost completely. And to a lesser degree, this was already being seen at this point in time, with Rome increasingly calling upon and hiring foreign mercenaries to conduct the wars on their behalf. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that this would play a central role in the eventual undoing of the Roman Empire. Military might going to whoever would shell out the most coins old emperors being cast down and new emperors raised with alarming frequency. Of course, this is quite the oversimplification, but still a relevant legacy item that I wanted to at least touch upon. So now, for some parting thoughts on Variathus. He was certainly a talented warlord from humble origins, undoubtedly brilliant and motivated by the emancipation of the Lusitanian people. I started thinking about this. Was there anything he could have done further to prevent the Romans from completing their conquest of the region? It's an interesting question that I kept on pondering while researching this story, and I continually landed upon one key item, perhaps the biggest gap in his overarching strategy. Aside from leading the Lusitanians through creative tactics and battles against the Romans, the other key feature of this war of fire was recruiting other tribes to stop cooperating with the Romans and kick off their own wars of resistance. Definitely a good step in the right direction in order to threaten the Romans in various places at once, but this could have been much more ruinous to the conquerors. Instead of simply dislodging the tribes to fight their own separate wars of resistance, it may have been more effective if they took the further step to actually plan out their strategy and goals more cohesively. Had this been actioned in an ongoing manner, planning their attacks, thereby essentially uniting their efforts and strengths, this potentially could have stopped the Roman steamroller in its tracks, or maybe just 
stall the eventual conquest a little further. Of course, we'll never know this. Granted, the fierce independence of these tribes, so deeply embedded into their culture, would have perhaps never allowed this to happen. In any event, his motivations for taking on the mantle of war is where his legacy shines. Variathus is celebrated as an ardent Lusitanian patriot, tenaciously driven by the need to defend his people against the dastardly gold rush that was being levied by the Hispanian Roman magistrates at the time, endeavoring to exploit their lands, resources, and people. And it was seemingly not for selfish reasons, because Variathus consistently showed a disdain for the greedy pursuits of riches and treasure, in stark contrast to their Roman adversaries. Plus, it's not hard to romanticize his story. A simple shepherd raised to a general, the ultimate underdog that led and fought alongside his people, standing up to the might of the Roman Republic. It's for these reasons that Variathus, to this day, 2200 years since his lifetime, continues to be celebrated as a national hero in Portugal and parts of Western Spain. A symbol of patriotism and independence, the enduring spirit of resistance even in the face of steep odds. Throughout the centuries in these countries, Variathus's story inspired great works of art, including paintings, and from a literary standpoint, which I'll include some examples of on my website. For example, Variathus is featured in an epic poem by Luis Vaz de Camões called Os Lusiadas, published in 1572 and widely regarded as the most important work in Portuguese literature. One would find statues and monuments to Variathus in cities including Castelo Branco and Viseu in Portugal, and in Zamora and the region of Guijo de Santa Barbara in Spain. Also, you'll find numerous streets and town squares named in his honor throughout the Iberian Peninsula. And the flag of the Spanish province of Zamora has eight red stripes, marking Variathus's victories over the Romans. And lastly, to top things off, Variathus even has a dessert named after him, a sweet pastry made popular in Viseu, Portugal, in the shape of a V called Viriatus, a scrumptious monument that helps to immortalize their first national hero. Now that we have finished with Variathus, in the next episode, we'll go exploring the Viking Age around the first millennium, just over 1,000 years ago, following the story of a ruthless Nordic warrior by the name of Swain Forkbeard, a remarkable military leader whose career begins with a revolt against his very own father to replace him as the king of Denmark and Norway before turning his attention to England, raiding and pillaging from the year 1002 onwards, as per Viking tradition, driven in part by retribution due to his sister's murder, ordered by the reigning King of England, Ethelred the Unready. Swain then achieved something that no other renowned Vikings were able to do before him, challenging and taking the English crown in 1013 becoming England's first Viking king. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. 
If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where, if you're so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly, with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com.